Hey, uh, we're in the middle of a series on relationships, and if you're just popping in, you've come in for the good stuff. Actually, I think it's all been good, but this is the sexy stuff. We're talking about sex this week, sex next week, and then marriage uh, during our last week together. And uh, before I say a few things about our sermon tonight, I want to say a few other things. Like Callie, I'm under the weather, so if I am not all here, I am sorry. Uh, I'm going to do my best and uh, pray that and trust that God will be more than sufficient in my weakness. Uh, I also want to give credit uh, to someone else. Some of the ideas and words in this message are uh, lovingly borrowed from a pastor friend named Ryan Laughlin. Uh, he just says things really well, so I took a few of them, and I'm giving credit where it's do. Now I want to talk about the message a little bit. We're talking about good sex tonight. And I'll talk about bad sex next week. And it's really hard to tease them apart in some ways. Um, But I I think it's helpful to do it this way because the principles and foundations we establish this week help us understand what bad sex is and why it's bad next week. That being said, I won't be able to say everything tonight that you would want me to say about why things hurt and why you hurt and what to do with your guilt and shame and even the nature of forgiveness and grace about which I will have much to say next week. I'll mention it, but not as much as I would like to be able to because I can't say everything. Uh, Secondly, uh, it's a hard topic for that reason. It's also hard because, well, frankly, I'm aware of the possibility that for some of you, this might be like the talk like the birds and the bees. Not that you're sexually naive and ignorant, but that it's quite possible that some of you have grown up in a home or an environment where no one had the guts, perhaps, or cared, or maybe there's some other good reason, I don't know, to sit down and talk to you about sex in a good and healthy way. And you may have got it in your like ninth grade gym class. Um, but this is a little bit different. And so there may be an element which is like, this is the birds and the bees and I get to do it. And that's a little awkward. That's okay. Uh, A request of mine is that as I talk tonight, I am going to talk as I try to do all the time, truthfully about hard things. That means in talking honestly, I'm going to say words like penis and vagina. And when I do it, you can giggle. But don't lose your mind, okay? Uh, let's all be big boys and girls. Yeah, some of the healthcare people are shaking their heads, but everybody else is getting, engineers have already lost their minds. Um, so uh, I just want to lay my cards on the table right now uh, about what this message is about, okay? I was talking to a student recently, and just in the midst of the conversation, and it was about sex, actually, to sort of surmise, you know, on like any given Friday night, there are a couple thousand students on campus having bad sex. Um, And by bad sex, I mean like not skillful, not loving, not serving, uh, painful, potentially abusive, and people are mutually using one another. I think that's actually the norm on a college campus. And... uh, that's true here. And we live in a world where that happens so often that there are lots and lots of people who've come to the conclusion that sex is bad. Because it's been bad for them, it's bad. And what I want us to see tonight is that the Bible says sex is good. Good, good, good. Okay? I'm going to be reading from two different texts. Well, three different books. Two different books, three different texts. Genesis 1 and 2. And then Song of Solomon, chapter 7. This is the NC-17 part of the Bible. Uh, So, 
again, be big boys and girls. Let's pick up in Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let's make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now flip over to chapter 2. Let's pick up in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib the Lord God had taken from the man, he put into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. I'll flip over to chapter, well, I'll flip, you look. Song of Solomon chapter 7. How beautiful are your feet and sandals. That's, not everyone can say that. Uh, oh, noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your necks like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bathrabim. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like caramel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in your tresses. How beautiful and pleasant are you, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree. Your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine. May the scent of your breath like apples. And your mouth like the best wine. And now she speaks. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let's go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let's go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened, and the pomegranates are in bloom. Uh, she's not talking about fruit. Um, there I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and besides our doors are all choice fruits, now new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O oh, my beloved. Alright. Alright, I'm going to pray for us. Great Father, we pray you would show us great things in your word. And in an area, Lord, where uh, we combine uh, ignorance, awkwardness, and shame. Uh, we pray you would give us help. We pray you would sink down deep in our hearts and minds the goodness of this gift. And help us to believe not only that it's good, but it's a good gift for us.
We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. I was sitting in a barbershop a couple years ago talking to the barber named Jim. And uh, I've been going there for a couple years. And on Saturdays, Jim bought in this old timer named Tony. Uh, Tony was like 92 or something. And uh, if you were in there on a Saturday, Jim, who's very funny, would say, Hey, guys, uh, I'm busy. Tony's here for you today. Uh, He cut hair for 40 years. He can't see anymore, but he can still cut hair. And you could see everyone look at each other, and then they'd go sit in his chair, and he'd give you a good haircut. He would stand like this close to you, because he he really couldn't see, but he always gave a good haircut. So uh, Tony had cut my hair. We had a great conversation. He was a he's a good old fellow, a really sweet man. So I was back in Jim's shop sometime later, and I asked Jim. This was a slow afternoon. No one was there. Hey, how's Tony doing? He sort of chuckled and said, uh, I almost had to let Tony go. I was like, did he get too old? Can't see? Uh, too slow? He's like, no, no, no. He still cuts fine. He can't see, but that's never stopped him. No, no. He, he went and got himself a girlfriend. And uh, I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, Tony, by this time, like 96, he's been a widower for like 20 years. And he met this, this is Jim's words, this new young hot thing who's 82. <laughs> recently widowed and they hit it off like that's good he's like it is good but tony was in the shop one saturday and he was asking customers hey y'all think we should get married everyone's like why in the world would you get married you're 96 and he'd say stuff like well i don't want to fornicate and jim's like good night man you can't you can't say stuff like that in here we don't want that mental image tony um no it's a really funny story um, but it leaves me with a question. Like, why can't octogenarians talk about having sex? Why can't they? Uh, why can't we talk about octogenarians having sex? Uh, the episode tells me something. It tells me that we're surprised that 90-year-old men would want to sleep with 80-year-old women. Why are we surprised? Uh, despite the fact that we live in a culture saturated by sex where we think about sex talk about sex hear about sex sing about sex um sex is evoked all the time sex is used to sell everything my favorite i don't have any favorites regarding how sex is used to sell things but there is one favorite my favorite is on i-76 as you're driving like out toward ligonier someone is trying to sell rustic lodge furniture with a hot blonde right you've seen it I'm like, you're using sex to sell furniture, like lodge furniture, because it works. And a culture saturated by sex, we nevertheless consistently fail to understand how powerful and good sex is. That's my premise, that we consistently fail to understand how good and powerful sex is. And because of that, we have lots of bad sex. We have lots of bad sex, which I'll talk about next week, because we don't realize how good and powerful sex is. And so we have hurting people hurting people, which is what I said last week. So the cultural narrative of today runs something like this. That the Bible and God and old-timey religions have said no to sex. And, um, and some of you have grown up in the church or in religious homes where the first words you heard about sex were, no, don't do it. 
and uh, and I, I sort of grew up in a culture like that, and I'm thankful for it. it saved me from lots of pain and trouble. Um, but the message from the culture is that's the only message the Bible or God has to give. Meanwhile, the culture is saying, and we're we're just sort of overwhelmed by this atmospheric like message. That if we're going to be authentic to ourselves, and that's our first job as humans in our culture today, 21st century Westerners, to be authentic to ourselves, we have to listen to our desires, especially our sexual desires. And listening to our sexual desires and seeking their fulfillment is the path to happiness. That is the consistent message of almost every movie, romantic movie, and every song about love and sex today. That we must be authentic to our longings, And that's the path to happiness. I want us to see today that the Bible story about sex is much better. The Bible story about sex is much better than the cultural narrative or any other cultural narrative. So just two points tonight. Uh, God's great yes to sex and God's greater purpose for sex. Okay. So again, I have outlines, some back there, some here. You can come again that one uh, if you want to. And um, yeah, so let's jump in. God's great yes to sex. God's first word on sex, and what we need to know is since he created everything, his first word about sex was actually like the very first word ever by anyone about sex. God's first word about sex is yes. Yes. We see in chapter 1... A God who, having created everything else, begins on the sixth day to create mankind. He creates the male and female in his image. And in verse 28, it reads that he blesses them. And then gives the first commandment. And we tend perhaps to think of commandments as these odorous, hard, toilsome things. God's commandment is, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Which is a fancy way of saying, go have sex. And make babies. Okay, I can do that one. Well, I can. Um, actually, I have. I did one of these commandments well. Um, so, so when God blesses them and says, I have four children, by the way, if you don't know. Um, I'm not taking sole credit for this, of course. When God says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, quick pop quiz, biology class, where are you paying attention? Are we talking about... Asexual or sexual reproduction? Which one of these are we talking about? Yes, sexual reproduction. So uh, why am I doing this? Because God has created sex. He's created it. And then he's commanded it. He's commanded it. Go do it. Uh, And he delights in it. Chapter 1 is filled with goodness. It's, it's filled with God saying after he makes something, it's good. And day 6 ends with God saying, it's very good. The sexual relationship that God created between male and female, he declares as blessed and very good. And then in chapter 2, what happens is we, we sort of zoom in. We, we've had it from God's perspective. Now we zoom in to mankind's perspective on the ground. And we see God bringing man and woman together. We, we, we picked up by, uh, by God noting that it's not good for the man to be alone. And God creates woman, a helper fit for him. You, you may see that verse. And, and girls, they may be like immediately, like impulsively, instinctively, like the hair stands up on the back of the neck. And you're like, helper, my whatever. Um, 
And uh, I just want to address that really quickly. Um, it's, it's not too little for you to be a helper uh, to your husband when in the Bible the word helper is used all the time of God. Of the, time that this, of the time that this very word for helper is used in the Old Testament, almost every time God's using it to describe himself. But he's a helper to us. In the New Testament, when this term is used, it's almost always used of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. In other words, God's inviting you to be like himself. And if you don't want to be like God, then I think your only option is you want to be the only God <laughs> and then God can serve your agenda but we don't need to talk about that some other time um, so anyway God brings the woman to the man and when I read this I didn't really pick this up till today uh, I just did a wedding a couple weeks ago and frankly what I think is happening here is the walk God creates the woman and brings her to the man like he, it says he brings her to the man like, he's walking the bride down the aisle to his son that he created. And uh, that's pretty awesome. And I've said this before, as a pastor, I, like, I have the best view for this part of the service of anyone. I get to see the bride and father come. And I get to see the groom's emotion on his face. It's, it's amazing. So, uh, God is bringing these two together. And in verse 23, you get this exultant poem from Adam. This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She'll be called woman. She's taken out of man. And uh, I thought really hard about how to translate this for like us, 21st century. And I couldn't really come up with a really like sophisticated way of doing it. I think, frankly, in the modern day vernacular for like a 20-year-old or 23-year-old guy, it would go something like this. Yes! Yes! That's what I'm talking about! Yes! Yes! That's what I've been waiting for! I, I frankly think that's what he's saying, actually. Like, I'm serious. Like, I'm dead serious, okay? I, I think that's the level of excitement, anticipation, longing that he's been waiting for. Yeah, only he's much more poetic than we are. John, maybe a few other people could write a nice poem. Most of us would just celebrate like we just hit a game-winning shot or something. Um, so what we have so far is God saying yes. He blesses it. Adam saying yes. And uh, a few implications follow out of this. I want to talk about our bodies real quick. Genesis 1 and 2, God creates us as creatures. We have bodies. Um, and we see in chapter 2, they're naked bodies. And uh, we, by nature, are ashamed of our naked bodies. But the Bible's not. You look at chapter 7. Song of Solomon. It's getting hot again. And uh, verses 1 to 5, he goes from head to toe, starting in verse 1. Actually, he goes from bottom up. He goes from toe to head in describing her delights. Now, 15 years ago, John Mayer did this. Singing, your body's a wonderland, your body's a wonderland, um, and on and on. But he's like 3,000 years late to the game. Uh, because he's, they've already, they're doing it right here, right now. This couple is enjoying the wonderland. And uh, just to be clear, you know, Song of Solomon's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. Like, it's right there. In other words, God's okay with us delighting in the bodies that he's given us. 
This is another indication of God's great yes to sex. So we have the blessing of the relationship. God brings the two together. There's delight and unashamedness. Of, or I don't know if that's a word. I just made it up. Um, they're not ashamed to be naked. And lastly, uh, they get busy unabashedly. Um, just to be clear, that's where this is heading. In chapter 2, they are naked and not ashamed. Um, and as Alan Edwards said a couple weeks ago, you can sort of like cue the music. It's time to get busy. And, um, you know, the, we, we expect consummation to happen. And given what I know about human nature and sex, this is just a guess. This is not authoritative. This is my suspicion. Probably what happened was the best sex ever. Yeah, probably the best sex ever. So um, we've missed out ever since then. Anyway, these guys aren't ashamed. And God's not ashamed. He's not ashamed of what's happening. Uh, in chapter 7, verses 7 and 9, um, you, you see them delighting in one another and in the sexual act, unabashedly, unapologetically, and that's what God thinks about sex. Is that the message you've heard growing up? Is that the message you've heard that Christianity thinks about sex? Because that's what the Bible says about sex. God says sex is good. I actually question whether we really think sex is good. I want you to consider this. Chapter 2, verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. God's not ashamed, they're not ashamed. Today, we're ashamed. We're ashamed of our bodies, and I think we're ashamed of sex. And uh, Callie's going to do a talk on shame, and we haven't talked about this, and I haven't fully figured all this stuff out, and I never will. But when it comes to areas of shame, I think we tend to do at least two or three things. One is we hide. Two is we work really hard to perform. Three is, and this one's really uncommon in most areas, but I think it's true in sex. We do what Paul says, we glory in our shame. We glory in our shame. He says that in Philippians chapter 3. Generally speaking, I think we hide. This is how and why some of you have never officially had the sex talk. Because your parents couldn't bring you to talk about it. And you and your curiosity couldn't just go and ask them. And uh, it's why you're afraid to talk about your body issues sometimes. We were ashamed. So we hide. But when we do talk about sex, and, we, and when we do talk about our bodies as a culture, we almost always do so rudely and crassly. Most of our cultural conversation about sex is not gentle, is not loving. Most of the ways we refer to our bodies, it's not uplifting, it's not good. Consider the words that we usually use as a culture for our genitalia. I'm not going to give them to you. But, but guys, well, I'll give the guys one. We'll call their stuff junk. You're junk. I mean, really, junk is to be disposed of. Do you want me to dispose of that? Well, that's not what I meant. Then I mean, why are you calling it junk? Uh, one of the most common female terms for genitalia, uh, and I'm not thinking about the five-letter version, I'm thinking about a four-letter version, has uh, been described, I think rightfully, as perhaps the most heavily tabooed word in the English language. Why would we take one of the worst, most offensive words in the human language and stick it on a, on a female genitalia? Why? I would love an answer to that question. 
I think it's because we're deeply ashamed. I, I think it's because we hate our bodies sometimes. And we don't know what to do with sex and the awkwardness of it. So somehow, we've got this narrative that, that God is prudish and thinks sex is bad. When the reality is, He created it, He blesses it, He brings it together, He's unabashed about it. But we... We have a problem talking about it, and we have a problem talking about its goodness, and we have a problem talking about it openly without devaluing and demeaning it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Am I right? Anybody? Give me something. Am I right? I think I'm right. So, God's word on sex is it's good. It's good. The question then that someone would ask is, uh, if it's so good, why the restrictions? More pointedly, as I remember someone asking in some comment section of an article years ago, never read the comment sections of articles, uh, why is it anyone's business where I put parts of my body? Why is it anyone's business where I put parts of my body? How does that affect anyone else? And in my sin, my first thought was, well, let me see how far I can stick my finger in your eye. <laughs> That's a sinful response, but you know, it does sort of prove the point. I wonder if I can reach your cerebral cortex. Um, so, what's that? I have big hands. Um, so, uh, let's talk about God's greater purpose for sex for a few minutes. God's greater purpose for sex is that whole persons be united. That whole persons be united. Chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, uh, basically, in verse 23, Adam saying, There's someone like me, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, that's not me, not exactly like me. And uh, then God tells in verse 24, You will leave your family and cleave to one another. You will stick together and become one flesh. This one flesh union, this binding together, is what marriage is all about. And, uh, you know, God talks about this over and over in the whole Bible. And basically what he's saying is when you're married, you are one, you're an ontological reality. In God's eyes, you belong together. It's not that you cease to exist as individuals, but he sees you together. And sex symbolizes that. When you come together in sex... It's really hard at times to tell where one person ends and the other begins. I'm not being crass. It's just true. It symbolizes marriage. Interestingly enough, the only other place in our lives where that's true is pregnancy. You can't really tell where one starts and the other ends. Um, But within the unity of marriage, sex symbolizes that union, but also serves it. Sex serves that union. It nourishes it. You see that in chapter 7, verses 10 through 11. Oh no, I missed my spot. I'll just read it up there. I am my beloved's, his desires for me. These people are married. Come, my beloved, let's go into the fields and lodge in the villages. Uh, you know, in the, in the context of marriage, sex here is serving the purpose of deepening love and unity. Sex says, I love you in ways that words fail. Which is a great gift to someone like me, where words often fail. 
Sex is a powerful bonding agent given by God that takes a spiritual oneness and makes it a deep reality in the heart of those who are participating. That's what it's for. Sex at its best in marriage is all of you, heart, mind, soul, and body, serving in love that other person, holy, heart, mind, soul, and body. To deepen that relationship. It says love a thousand different ways. Loudly. It's a movie about 20 years ago that came out called Vanilla Sky. Anyone seen Vanilla Sky? It's a very disturbing film. I don't necessarily suggest you watch it. Um, But there's a powerful scene there between Tom Cruise and Cameron Diaz. They've been sleeping together. They're in a car. She's driving. And uh, they're having a friendly chat. But she's upset. And says... uh, She's upset and admits it's because he has referred to her crassly to another friend as basically, much more crassly, her, his best friend with benefits. And uh, out of nowhere, she asks him, his name is David in the movie, David, what about all the promises that you've made? And Cruz is genuinely befi- just befuddled. He has no idea what you're talking about. Incredulously, he says, what are you talking about? You're joking. And she says, David, I love you. Don't you know I love you? He's completely dumbfounded. He doesn't say a word. He doesn't know what to say. She goes on in great detail to describe their many encounters and the nature of their sexual intimacy in great detail. And at the end of it, she says, David, that means something. Don't you know when you sleep with someone, your body's making a promise whether you do or not? He doesn't respond. He's dumbfounded. And then she drives her car off a bridge. So, yeah, um, anyway, not every hard conversation ends that way, thankfully. But, yeah, uh, it does in this case. So, I think she's on to something. Sex does speak. Sex speaks, and sex says, I love you. It it speaks devotion. It says, I'm yours. It's designed to say that. In a hundred different ways, it's designed to say that. And therefore, it's designed to unite two people. To bring two people who are already committed to one another closer together. And this, my friends, is why sex is for marriage. It's meant to bind two people who are already committed to one another closer together. Simply put, sex is too powerful for you to play with. It's too powerful for you to play without getting hurt, without hurting other people, because of what it's meant to do. So that's what sex is for. It's part of God's great purpose, to bring whole people together to one another. But that's not all. Last point, uh, it's to serve the world. This is actually really important. I don't think anyone talks about this. And by saying that, I don't think, I'm not saying I'm a revolutionary. Some people talk about this, but not enough people talk about this. There's a bit of a wonderful mystery here that we really need to hear. That what happens behind closed doors in a, in a married relationship, in sex, is not designed just to make me happy. It's not designed just to make me happy. But it's part of God's greater, grand story for the world. In chapter 1, he tells them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the world, subdue it. 
In chapter 2, he tells the couple, work this garden, keep it. And what he's actually telling them to do is take the blessing I've given you and expand it into the world. That's God's design plan for mankind. And frankly, it's really wonderful when your job is to share life together with your spouse and part of your job description involves sex. Like, that's what's going on here. Their job is to fill the world, subdue it, make good things better, and expand it into the world. That's what God commanded us to do as humans. Um, You know, work together, love each other, have some kids. Now, I'm going to say this, and this is probably, in the history of controversial things, perhaps for some of you the most controversial thing I'll say. Even more controversial than stuff I said about anxiety or dating. Occasionally, people will ask me, what is God's will for my life? And my answer is, the question you're asking, the way you're asking it is, I don't know. Because you're asking about occupation and where you're supposed to live, and I have no idea. But regarding other aspects of what's God's will for your life, I know perfectly well. Love God, love neighbor, follow Ten Commandments. And then this, for the most part, for most of us, God's will, there are some exceptions, God's will is that you will get married and have lots of good sex where you love and serve one another, and you will have kids, and you will love your kids, and you will teach them right, and they will help make this world a better place as you teach them justice and mercy and how to love Jesus and your neighbor. That is God's will for your life. You can go home, end of college. Um, I, I, I'm sort of being silly, but sort of not. Like That is sort of like the big plan that God has for most of us. And here's what I want you to hear. If you make sex... All about your happiness. You're missing God's greater purpose, and you're going to end up using people, hurting people, and being disappointed yourself. Your sex life is not meant just for your happiness. God gave it to us to bring two people wholly together for life to be a blessing to the world. Yeah. So I'm begging you. And really, this is begging. I don't beg. I don't beg. I almost want to take the word back. But I am begging you to have a vision. To cultivate a vision for sex for you that's bigger than your own happiness. Okay? Seriously. A a vision for sex for you that's bigger than your own happiness. God's created it good to bring you together with someone wholly together, unashamed, fully knowing, fully loving, in order to bless the world. I have one more thing to say to some of you. Some of you really need to hear this. Everything I've just said about the goodness of sex can still be good for you. Everything I've just said can still be true of you. Some of you would say, have said, and have said tonight... I've already gone too far, messed up, screwed up, and hooked up. And I need you to hear me. This whole Bible is about a God that forgives. Chapter 3, we screw it all up. Like the very next chapter, we screw it all up. And the rest of the book is about a God who forgives and restores and gives good gifts to his children. Like good gifts like a good future spouse and a new heart. And teaching you how to love in unselfish ways. And giving you a spouse that, yeah, maybe you don't deserve. That's the story of the Bible. We get good things we don't deserve. Uh, Don't give up. Don't give up hope. And, uh, yeah, 
have this vision for sex that's bigger than you. I'm convinced, friends, that God's story about sex is better than we think. It's better than our stories about sex, that's for sure. I'm going to close with a story. A couple years ago, this couple named Gordon and Norman Yeager, they were a couple that lived in Iowa, they had been married for, count it, 72 years. Okay, married for 72 years. Uh, that's a lot of sex, probably. Um, they were heading uh, into town. What? It's true. They're heading into town, and uh, they failed to make it. So this is a two-car crash sermon. Uh, they failed to make it. At an intersection just west of town, Gordon pulled out in front of another car. They got hit, and when family arrived, um, they found that the nurses had been wise enough in the, in the ICU to put the couple together. Uh, they were both unconscious. Um, they were side by side, holding hands, actually. And uh, neither one of them ever woke up. Gordon passed away first, and though his breathing had stopped, both the nurses and the family were mystified because it registered that he still had a pulse. It took him about two minutes to figure out that it was actually her still barely beating heart, registering through their held hands that was showing up. She passed away about one hour later. Now, that's a sad story, right? But isn't that a beautiful story? I mean, isn't, isn't that the, like, look, you're all going to die, okay? And, and if you're married, like, one of you is going to die first. Like, this is the best way to go. It really is. Like, wouldn't that be the best way to go? Wouldn't you like to have a kind of marriage, the kind of oneness, where after 72 years, like, their heart beats your heartbeat? Isn't that great? I want you to have this kind of vision for sex. The old people got to me after all. Sorry. All right. I, I really, I want you to have this kind of vision for sex and marriage. And it's, it's out there for you. It's God's great plan and gift for us. So let me pray.